Hi, I'm Dave Bazuki, founder and CEO at Roblox, and you're listening to Tech Talks, a podcast about the people and ideas that are shaping the future of the metaverse. In this series, we'll be exploring some of the most innovative technologies that have emerged in this new category and sharing stories with the Robloxians that are building them. Today, I'm joined by Arsene Kapulkin, Technical Fellow at Roblox. We're going to be talking about what differentiates Roblox technology from other online platforms. Let's get started. Arsene, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you today. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm in the Roblox office today. Um, I've been starting to come in as some of us are. How about you? Where are you calling from? Uh, I'm calling from San Francisco. I haven't been to the office since we reopened yet, but hopefully it's good. Uh, it's There's a lot of empty desks and a lot of empty space. So for me, it's pretty relaxing. Um, hey, Arsene, we've been working together for quite a while, haven't we? Yeah, I think it's been nine years now. Okay, well... The day you joined us was a great day for Roblox, and we were super fortunate. How did you come to work at Roblox? How did you find us, or how did we find you? Um, yeah, so I worked in game development pretty much all my life. Um, and in 2012, when I joined Roblox, so um, I was working in uh, various console studios. I was working on FIFA before I came to Roblox. I was kind of getting tired of you know, the traditional game development process and wanted to explore some ideas. And a friend who um, used to work at Roblox reached out to me and was like, hey, you know, there's this cool company that I work at. Uh, we do some crazy stuff. It's like difficult to explain why this is awesome, but trust me, come join and it will, it'll be great. And uh, yeah, so I flew in for an interview, still remember parts of it. And um, I decided that I don't know for sure, but it looked like a very interesting, very different opportunity that's kind of yeah. still in line with, uh, you know, my expertise. Like it didn't feel like a complete fresh start. So it felt like my experience would be useful, but also it felt like drastically different on pretty much any angle from what I have done before. Yeah, I remember parts of that interview. And by the way, that friend, I just saw that friend about three weeks ago. So that was awesome. But I vaguely remember in the interview when we were chatting, a desire to work on systems and platform and engine, in addition to content, which was exactly what we were looking for. I mean, we make platform, we make core rendering engine stuff. What can you remember what the very first thing you worked on was? And was it in line with what you'd been looking for? Um, yeah, I think the first thing I was working at, which is kind of ironic because it's a, sort of a project that comes and goes at Roblox. Uh, so the first thing I worked on was a hundred player project. And back then I think the notion was, you know, we were nowhere near ready to support hundred real players across the network boundary but the question was can we at least render 100 characters on screen at the time and so this was the first thing i worked on which gradually turned into well let's rewrite a lot of portions of our rendering code uh, to be more efficient to be more scalable and kind of went from there hey i know this isn't the talk where we're going to dive deep into the engine but for some of those roblox fans out there 
I think we've secretly morphed our, our rendering engine at least two times from an original one to an ogre one to the one you wrote specifically. Where were we in that phase when you started doing that work? Yeah, so when I started doing this work, we um, uh, it was an interesting blend where we already used Ogre as the rendering engine, but a lot of the higher level rendering code that talks to Ogre was, I think, pretty much the same code from, you know, 2006 days or whatever before Ogre became a thing. And so this was my focus first, right? Um, let's look at the high level code. Let's make it really optimal. Um, let's make it both efficient, but also let's make it easier for us to work with that code in the future to add features. Yeah, it's it's just been really fun for me that under the covers, we've really iterated so many times without a lot of the people on the platform knowing it. But by controlling the full stack, a lot of which you've participated in, we have the the control and the flexibility to do that. So I, I just remember how happy it made me when we, we started pulling some of that code out and getting the arsony code in our platform. <laughs> the arsony code. But yeah, um, for sure, this, is, um, this was kind of a very happy feeling. And um, one thing that's interesting is that the, the degree to which we control the stack has increased over the years, right? So like we started with um, a different rendering engine and we switched to over, uh, then we said we need to write our own. And then like, as we went by through this process, we started seeing more and more, you know, every problem we see, whether it's a performance problem, a quality problem, it's our problem in the end, regardless of how much, uh, how much of our code kind of contributes to this problem. And so the degree to which we can own every layer of the stack that we are comfortable with, um, the more this happens, the easier it is for us to fix these problems to improve the, the overall product. Yeah, and, and in a sense with that stack, we've gone very narrow, but very deep. And that, you know, we've we've talked about it for 15 years, we're not building a 2D gaming platform and we're not building a casual gaming platform. We're building a cloud-based 3D physically simulated client server, you know, metaverse platform. Can you tell us a little bit around what you what's different between Roblox's platform and a lot of discussion right now around cloud gaming platforms? Yeah, so um, our model is pretty different fundamentally and I think to an extent, I, I'm tempted to say we maybe stumbled upon this somewhat accidentally, but I think over the years we've refined this notion and kind of validated a lot of the learnings. So the big difference between what's considered cloud gaming these days um, and us is that we um, run the game to an extent on the client's device. Mo many gaming cloud gaming platforms today have thin clients, so your client plays back video, it funnels input back to the server, but really most things happen on the server. For us, there is still the game logic and a lot of simulation that happens on the server, but we have the leeway in pushing some of this compute to the client or not. Um, and so it is fundamentally kind of more freeing and more flexible because we can say, well, we don't like the user input latency for the character movement. Great. What has to happen is that the character movement end-to-end -end has to stay on device. But some other things maybe don't have to stay on device. And this even can vary per the device type, per 
you know, your network environment, et cetera, et cetera. So it is freeing in a sense, right? It's architecture uh, allows us to be a bit more flexible. But of course, the problem is now that we have to deal with a giant variety of devices, right? And what we run on device isn't as simple anymore as a video player, right? It's um, rendering code, it's simulation code, it's network networking code. And so a lot of kind of real world, like physical limitations of these devices start to come into play. Yeah, I remember from the start, we'd been hoping to do something we called 4D gaming or moving beyond the 3D look, getting into the physical properties. And so there's a deep legacy and Roblox around physics simulation and simulation in general and our hopes to that. And part of this uh, distributed client server model we just didn't have enough horsepower on some of the clients to simulate the whole world. So in a sense, we'd stumbled into that a little bit and that we tried to share that physics processing server side and client side. One of the early byproducts of that for those uh, people out there that were on the very early Roblox in a hyper distributed client server model that was very early, there was not a lot of security and things that happened on the client sometimes went to the server just as we want things on the server to go to the client. Do you remember any of those days, Arsene? For sure, for sure. It's kind of interesting. Roblox walked this path from being, you know, um, a building toy to being the platform that people rely on. And there's a lot of things that come with this, right? You have to take security very seriously, et cetera. But the way I think about this is, you know, you could look at the network networking model we used to have, which is client can be authoritative over really large portions of the world and say, well, like this is dumb. Nobody should do this ever because obviously this creates security problems. But sometimes I think that this was almost inevitable. This was what made Roblox succeed in the end because it dramatically reduces friction and it gives us time to build up tools it, to for the community to build up knowledge to transition to a new, more secure model, right? And I think this was the right choice, but I feel like in the end, it was a super important stepping stone for the Roblox as a whole platform that evolved over the last 15 years. I think it's safe to say it's a design pattern that uh, involved a fair amount of courage in that we wanted something very simple that would have profound applications and we knew we would have to layer on a little bit more server-side security as we went. But the early simplicity and fun of that ecosystem was actually, we got a lot, we went really far very quickly with that and gave us the ability then to layer that on as we went. Yeah, the other interesting side effect is that it forced us to invest a lot into client-side security in the early days. And um, some of these layers are becoming less important now, but I think it's still the case that, you know, really for any online game, you can make an exploit. The client always has some degree of control, whether it's auto-aim or something like this, you can usually make something work. And so for us, we had this interesting combination between this was really important for us and also um, the Accessibility of Roblox was always really important to us. Roblox does not require and have been installed uh, to this day. So there's no kernel driver. There is no uh, sort of heavy-handed protection in that sense that we can impose our, on our users. And so this required us to kind of build up the muscle that proved up to be useful later on with respect to security. Yeah, and, and one 
a thing I think that we had very early with Roblox is a lot of players around the world with fairly large latencies between those players and our ability to start very early with an architecture where there was some client authority on your local avatar mixed with a distributed physics engine for other parts of the world, maybe not for all first person shooters, but for a lot of social experiences, really cut down the latency and made things feel satisfying even early on in the company. Yeah, for sure. There, there used to be the days, we've cleaned up a lot of these flows over the years. There used to be the days when your client disconnected from the server for whatever reason, and you could still walk around. Uh, and this is kind of mind-blowing, like, like you, it shouldn't be possible. Yeah. Um, but um, it was, and it is possible because of this model where your client takes control over some objects in the world. Uh, can you talk a bit about uh, people out there know that we have both uh, CDN delivery as well as core game server delivery. Can you share a little bit about what goes CDN, what goes server, and how that might differ from video or you know video streaming? Mm -hmm. um, so the way we think about the networking model from, from this perspective, what does it take for a client to join the game, is we send two types of data over two different channels. So one channel is the you're connecting to the server when you're playing the game, and a lot of other people connect to the exact same server instance, could be a few hundred of those. Um, and this server is the server that is simulating the game. It's a server that holds basically a complete picture of the world. And what it's doing is it's sending world descriptions, object descriptions in sort of a metadata format. Like if we want to say, oh, there's a building here, here's a wall of this building. Well, we send the identity of the wall, the position of the wall, the size of the wall, things like this. This is enough on the client to reconstruct a basic primitive model of the world. Like we can render the world from just this data alone. Um, this world doesn't necessarily have enough fidelity. For example, we send the wall, but um, along the wall just comes the color or the material of the wall. We don't know what, for, for any given pixel of the wall, this data doesn't kind of contain the color of that pixel, right? And so the second channel um, comes from our CDN and this contains a lot of the visual assets. So it's textures, it's meshes, it's audio files, it's animation data. A lot of these things are not, um, they don't have an influence on the world simulation yeah. and we can actually run the game without them, which is really powerful because this means that the latency requirements for delivery of that data are much less strict than for the server, right? Yeah, it's almost like when we talk about cars, there's form and function. One of our channels is a function channel and we want that as lean and fast as we can. And then we have this big form visual channel through the CDN that we can append to that. For sure. And it used to be the case that the function was actually kind of the function channel was enough to build up a lot of the form. Now it's not always the case because maybe the car has um, a complex mesh and we have some simplified versions of this mesh, but we don't really render them because they're too crude. But in general, you can think in very, very, very rough terms, you can think of the function channel as like providing the metadata to be able to simulate the world, but also serve as a really, really coarse visual representation as well, right? And this is really powerful because this means that you can, on a really low bandwidth channel, you can join a game and um, maybe you aren't seeing you know, all of the textures on the walls or anything like this. But the other thing that's important is a lot of these assets most of these assets really that come from the CDN, they are static. 
And yeah. so we can cache them really well. We can cache them. We can prefetch them. There's a whole lot of optimization that can happen there. Whereas for the metadata, a lot of our assumptions say, well, the world can be in kind of arbitrary state when you join. Like if there was a building at the start of the service lifetime, it doesn't mean that the building will still be there when you join 10 minutes later, because maybe you got destroyed, right? And so uh, both of these channels are important for these reasons. And this really helps for, as you say, any any devices with low bandwidth, um, any cases where the device doesn't have a lot of computational power, so we don't want to process all of this as a data kind of immediately as you join, many of these cases get easier to handle. Yeah, I can remember engineering meetings a long time ago when we talked about this architecture where we said, look, if we were a movie streaming company, we would want to go down to 16 pixel view if we had to, to join very quickly under very difficult conditions. And I think that's a bit of a metaphor when I think about Roblox and that we're trying to survive on low end devices in bad situations with that core functional channel. And then we layer that dynamic channel on. Um, hey, one one thing that a lot of our listeners might not realize is a huge amount of the code in all of the clients on Roblox, as well as in Roblox Studio, as well as in our game servers, as well as in our utility servers that maybe render thumbnails is exactly the same. And when people look at Roblox and say, how do you do all that with a 1200 person company? I think some of it relates to these decisions. Um, it's all C++. Can you share a bit about what's in that code and how does that work and you know the benefits we've gotten from that mm -hmm. for sure uh, one other area that people usually don't expect that really wasn't there 40 years ago maybe it is there now is that if you open an app on mobile a roblox app on mobile the set of ui and the set of business logic that you're greeted with for logging in and choosing a game and all these game sorts and chats like everything that happens outside of the game it used to be a web page a long time ago but now it's not now it's the exact same engine running the exact same code a game developer can make something that is functionally identical to the Roblox app as a game because it's the same stack. Okay, right. So there's really two layers, our C++ layer, and then there's also our user interface stack. And most people don't know that when they're they're using Xbox or one of our mobile apps, they're running a, essentially a Roblox game on top of that where we're really eating a lot of dog food. So maybe, yeah, let's touch base on both C++ as well as the UI stack. Right, um, but I think to to your previous question, so we are a 1200 person company now, but this wasn't always the case. And very, very early on, we said, well, um, we know we wanna go really wide in terms of platform support. We know that uh, we don't have a lot of people to do all of that. So how can we be maximally efficient? How can we reuse as much code as possible? And be really, really careful about when, you know, we have to, um, write some code that solves a specific problem on a specific platform versus say, okay, we need an abstraction here. We need uh, very small, slim implementations of this abstraction for different platforms. We spend a lot of the attention on this, for example, in rendering where, you know, we, we had a very, very, very small rendering team up until the last few years. And uh, we have a small team that has multiple platforms. We own our render engine. Uh, what do we do, right? So we had to be super deliberate and say, well, you know, we will simplify the interfaces as much as possible. We will try to make sure that whenever we implement some data structure or some pattern or whatever, 
to the extent it can solve many problems in many different domains, that's fantastic, right? Um, and uh, a lot of our engineering decisions have been guided like that, right? To to minimize the amount of friction, to minimize the amount of tech depth, to minimize the amount of kind of repetitive code that we have to write. And this pays off often. Like, I don't know, I remember when we were implementing um, mesh, uh, user uploadable meshes. And for people from the game industry who are listening to this, it may come as a surprise, like, what? Why are user uploaded meshes a feature that is worth talking about? And well, the reason it's worth talking about is Robux didn't always used to have this. And part of this is we talked about this functional layer, right? And for the purpose of the functional layer, you don't need to have a mesh definition because you rarely use the full mesh definition for simulation or whatever, right? So we just didn't have this feature. And so at some point we, we ended up shipping this feature. And the nice thing was we had the rendering house in order in the sense that it was very easy to piggyback on top of other functionality that we had to implement before to make this happen. We had the collision uh, like physics simulation house in order because at that point we already had a feature for constructive solid geometry. And it so happened that for to make constructive solid geometry work, we had enough kind of algorithms that implemented pretty much exactly the pipeline we need to have for measures. And so from this perspective, it's kind of interesting. I think about this in terms of at Roblox, there is usually kind of a right time to implement a given feature. And this is when enough of the pieces align for the implementation to go well, to not carry a lot of kind of unknowns to to just work, like you just write the code that's so, sort of obvious and it just works. So of course now as we have more people, we have more uh, time to dedicate to some kind of branch outs, like we have a more complex render engine now than we used to have. We have more complex physics engine that we used to have, et cetera. But I think a lot uh, of the engineering process and a lot of the decision-making process really comes from these days of, well, we don't have a lot of people. We have a lot to do. How do we do that? Hey, uh, following on that notion, in addition to multiple devices, the capability of these devices is so radically different. And the difference between an iPhone 8 and probably the machine you have on your desk right now, I hate to imagine whether that's a 50 or 100x the compute power. There, there was a day early in Roblox when Eric and I were testing that the lowest end device was a Pentium 3 700 megahertz mm -hmm. that would run the Roblox engine. And we kept that thing in a room full of crappy old machines. And whenever we did a new release, we'd go back into our room of crappy machines and see if it would still work. Carrying on in that tradition today, can you talk about how we grapple with such a wide range of compute and GPU and memory and bandwidth. Mm -hmm. um, I still remember this room uh, for, you know, graphics enthusiasts out there. When I joined Roblox, which was in 2012, for the first few years, there was a machine in that room which had a Riva TNT2, which is a video card from, I don't know how, it's like a really old one. It doesn't have shader support. It basically, it's barely enough to run Windows. Roblox actually ran on this for a few years after I joined. And this was like, if it runs there, we can be sort of safe and sound, like we are doing pretty good, right? But yeah, the the range in terms of really all of the sort of this physical capabilities of the devices is astounding. And the other thing that's really big is, 
you can't even know what the computational capacity or memory capacity is of the device that you're running on in a lot of times, because the systems, the operating systems just don't give you this kind of information. You may be running on a phone, but A, you don't really know what the frequency is of the course on this phone. B, if this phone is in a hot room, turns out the frequency drops like 4X, and that's a huge thing. All of your code runs four times slower. And so essentially what had to happen over time is pretty much every system at Roblox had to be able to adapt to the sort of circumstances and say, okay, I have this much time, this much memory to do what I need to do. I have a problem set, which is potentially unbounded because you know we also deal with user-generated content. So there's this fun matrix of here's every possible game on the planet on Roblox, and here's every possible device on the planet, right? Uh, does this game work on this device and does it do this very well? And so this is super difficult. So every system has to be adaptive. It has to be able to say, well, I don't have enough memory, so I can unload some objects from memory. And you know, if I need them again, the server can send me them because the server has the full view. Maybe I can load them from disk, right? I don't have enough time to do this, so I have options. One option is to solve the same problem at a smaller fidelity level. Another option is to dilate things in time, like, well, this object doesn't have to move every frame. Another option is to offload some processing to the server or to other peers in the system. This is what we do for physics simulation. So there's a range of these kind of approaches that, uh, you know, for every system that works well in Roblox and scales well, there's usually a few that we can combine to make it work, but it can be super difficult. And, you know, to be honest, we've worked on this problem for the last 10 years, and we probably will work on this problem for the next 10 years because it's just so foundationally difficult. Uh, there's a lot of difficult stuff to do. I can remember um, a long time ago in a Dick Tracy cartoon, seeing a wristwatch with a TV on it, and thinking that will never happen. And now I've got an iWatch, you know, iWatch and it works. And what that leads me to is the notion that the photorealistic 10,000 person experience we like to dream about will happen someday as well on the platform. But as you correctly note, I think that who knows how far out that is. Uh, can you hint without going too deep into it? of some of the tools we might have at our disposal for the future that we're not using today. But I think in the Roblox spirit, we're open to any tool that gets that user experience there. Do you have any rough ideas of things we may start to see in the future? Mm -hmm. So I think one thing to note is that really for every system that we look at, there's kind of two ways to look at this. One is, there's so much more that we can do with the system without changing the fundamental principles that it runs on. And I think there's a fair amount of work ahead of us in pretty much every area, whether it's rendering, fidelity, simulation, et cetera. Um, when it comes to rendering, one big meta kind of level that we are starting to think more and more about is doubling down on um, procedural techniques. Because one other complex aspect of Roblox, as we just said, you know, it's a cloud platform. A lot of things come from CDN. Well, turns out if you have a game on one of the big consoles, this game is tens of gigabytes of download ahead of time. It would be a problem if we said, well, you can play this game, but before you play this game, you have to download 20 gigabytes of content. Like this is also a fundamentally challenging problem to reconcile. So we want to look more into kind of that realm. And then on the scale of the world, et cetera, side, um, it used to be, it's kind of funny, it used to be like five years ago, all servers on Roblox ran on a single core. 
Um, hard to imagine now, but you know this used to be the case. Today, um, the hardware in the data center, the hardware and server side evolved drastically. So we plan to take way more advantage of this. But also, I think it's pretty clear to us that at some point, we can't fit a whole Roblox game on a single server. What happens then? I think it's you know there's it's there's interesting um, kind of different directions that one can imagine when going there. But this is something that we want to explore and kind of um, go in the direction that feels most plausible to us in, in our future. What's exciting to me is the opportunity to iterate towards that vision, just as we did with three different graphics rendering engines without a lot of the players and people on Roblox knowing that it's happening, but that same experience that runs today with 200 players in several years, flip the switch and it's running with 5,000 without any user intervention would be a wonderful Roblox way to get there. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, I think the way we um, approach a lot of the problems is, you know, here's the big scary um big scary vision right big big scary um system we need to build well let's try to decompose this and then let's ask the question for any of the components does it make sense outside of this scary future and often the answer is yes and if the answer is yes you know we should be able to build one today and so really a lot of this is you you bring the rendering engine example which is i think fascinating because today there's basically not a single line of rendering code that um, still runs in roblox that existed in 2012 but the way this happened isn't that we took a big team and we said here's five years write a new engine you know at the end we deploy it it happened in small steps and every step had distinct value, but also it moved us closer and closer to that future. And so I think the same thing will happen here. One of our dreams around building Roblox is the more we simulate the real world, the more we can make it easier to build things. And also there's a lot of technical things around our engine and our, our language stack that also make that. So my, I always used to say, um, cars need to have wheels and axles and motors and people will understand that more than a highly scripted mesh-based car. For you, when you think about developers and supporting them either for a first-time developer or really large team, are there any choices that come to your mind um, of things we've done that have helped make it easy to build at scale? Mm -hmm. So I think the uh, biggest kind of most difficult thing to grapple with is when we, what level do we expose features at? Like what granularity or what sophistication of a user do we assume? And there's some balance there. You probably don't want to give developers control of every individual knob in the physics engine. A lot of them just don't make sense in the future. And also you probably don't want it you don't want to be able to build a good car on Roblox if you have to be a mechanical engineer. That's also probably not great, right? So trying to find this balance between um, sort of how, how rich should the surface of the API be, but at the same time, how constrained it can be, right, is really difficult. Um, so if I think back, there's a few things I think that aged well and that allow 
allow us and kind of will allow us to innovate further from the same API and definition. One of the big things that probably comes to mind is the terrain engine, because the foundational definition of what terrain is at Roblox is very simple. Um, there's no meshes, there's no height maps, there's like a grid of voxels, and in each point, you know what the material of that point is, right? This is, it gets a bit more defined if you start looking a bit closely, because right now there's a finite resolution, but actually a lot of the APIs are made in such a way that if we wanted a multi-resolution um, internal representation, which, which actually we already have, um, then, you know, it's easy for us to expose, we just haven't done this. And so there is this very, very pure, almost mathematical definition of what terrain is at Roblox. But then we are able to say, well, here's the initial implementation of this that delivers this kind of performance, this kind of visuals, this kind of collision fidelity, et cetera. But since the definition is so pure, we can say, well, no, actually this, we don't like the way this part of the system works anymore. Let's rework this from the exact same content, exact same APIs, nothing changes, and then things magically get better. I think this is one of the, um, the, the happiest point. So you can, there's a lot of kind of fun um, interacting with developers, you know, hearing the feedback about features, et cetera. And when you ship something new, that's always super exciting, right? People see this, people start using this, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing that is almost the best thing we can ever do at Roblox is not even shipping something new, it's taking every single game that uses a feature and say, well, you know, suddenly all your games look better, can you, feel better. Can you comment a bit on the internal rework of the Lua engine that we did and that magic day when we turned that on for everyone and what that meant? Oh yeah, this, 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 this was interesting. We may talk about this in more detail in the future, but yeah. We okay, do. how about hint at it and then we'll go in depth next time we chat. Yeah, that sounds good. Essentially what happened a few years ago is we, we've used the almost vanilla implementation of Lua 5.1 for really since the beginning of Roblox since, since 2006 or so. And there's like interesting history around all of this that we can talk about later. But um, a year and a half ago, we essentially, after doing a lot of testing, et cetera, et cetera, we flipped the switch. Well, I think what actually happened is we enabled the switch, then there was a critical bug and then we disabled it and then we fixed the bug and then we did this from the second time. But we flipped the switch Every single script that runs on Roblox became faster, but with substan substantial difference in performance. And to our knowledge, basically every single script outside of malicious exploit scripts that use like really undefined behavior in the language um, still work the same, right? And basically nobody noticed this was a thing where sometimes we ship updates and we have to implement a switch that developers can toggle on and off. This was the case when we didn't do this, it just worked. Yeah, I think I like to imagine that I, I reached out to you and said, Arsene, no one knows it, but Roblox's growth is going to accelerate over the next few months by X percent purely because of this performance. And no one's going to say it, but I'm going to say it to you. I hope I said that to you. I think this actually happened, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because perf is so important. And this is that one very deep technical task really did lift all boats. It's it's the ultimate kind of touchless feature. That that was that was a very exciting day for me. Um, hey, going forward, if um, you know, for you now, you've worked in both gaming companies and technology companies as well. Do you have any advice you would give uh, people who are interested in? 
either call it the gaming space or the human co-experience space or the 3D space or the metaverse space? Mm -hmm. So um, my path is a bit sort of special in the sense that I don't know that it's right for everyone, but I do see a lot of people who kind of share the same values. So my my big thing has always been when you work on technology, try to understand this technology as deeply as you can. Um, when you work with a library, ask questions, how does this work? What do individual functions do? What is the performance cost? This actually runs on real hardware. How does the hardware work? And I find that the more you can kind of descend down this abstraction uh, hierarchy and kind of drill into, okay, what's the fundamental truth here? Like how do things really work? I find this, this helps you grow tremendously as a professional, regardless of whether you directly um, can apply this in the sense that regardless of whether you can change the layers under you, this just amplifies your level of understanding and allows you to think at a different level. And this, there's definitely plenty of opportunity to do this in really the entire gaming space. It's graphics, it's physics simulation. There's so many of examples, like our physics engine is really amazing. And the reason why it's really amazing isn't just because it has this really solid mathematical foundation. It is that without this, nothing works. It isn't just that the internal architecture and structure works really well. It is that, but it is not just that. It's also the fact that as an engineer that knows exactly kind of how instructions schedule on CPUs and you know what essentially what cycles mean and what CMD means. And, you know, a few people like this looked really, really closely at how this engine executes. And you take any one of these things out and you don't get a really well working system. And so, yeah, my advice would be try to get a very thorough understanding of really any technology you work with, and you will find that this helps you grow. And you will find that the work that you do gets more interesting, more deeply, profoundly meaningful. And you'll find kind of avenues that you never would have seen otherwise if not for doing that. Hey, this makes me wonder, do we still have any SIMD abstraction in Roblox? Oh, we absolutely do. Okay, so this is a great example of Arsene going all the way deep in that uh, for those of you that are not technical, there's a special set of registers 15 years ago that was very new and not all computers had them. And I'll, it was a way to do math functions more quickly. And I always dreamed that someday we would abstract this. So on any device, any compiler, we take advantage of it. I think a year or two or three after you started Arsene, I just, I caught wind. Oh my gosh, we're doing a SIMD abstraction layer. And it was, you know, you were doing it on your own and it was, it was related to that interest in going deep and stuff. And that was also a wonderful day for me. Yeah, um, I think a lot of the credit for the SIMD abstraction um, is um, with our physics engineer, but uh, I think I pioneered some of the earlier use of CMD. But yeah, and, and it is kind of interesting because a lot of people treat CMD as the black magic of performance computing. But actually for me, the work I've done on the Lua interpreter is actually deeper because it causes you to get into sort of really, really intricate details about you, not just like what a CMD instruction is, but you know how exactly does the processor work really, really on a low level, which is a lot of fun. Is there any, just now you're getting me excited technically, is there any if this CPU, you know, AMD, Intel, ARM in that Lua stack or how, how much of it's been able to been generic? So this is an interesting question. Um, 
we see amazingly close results between the AMD and Intel, between the modern AMD and modern Intel architectures. I was really worried about this uh, because, um, you know, we used to only um, care sort of about Intel performance and now AMD performance is really important to us. But they are actually, the results are really close. Um, as in, it's rare to have an optimization that pessimizes another architecture. On mobile, interestingly, it's different. There is a few things that we had to do a bit differently on mobile because of the quirks in some ARM chips. Um, so a lot of this work, though, is it's cross-platform, but it still requires you. It's essentially, it's cross-platform code, but to write this cross-platform code, it is vital for you to understand the really, really, really deep details of the CPU execution. That's awesome. An interesting combination. Hey, maybe what you've just been sharing is how you define innovation. For me, in some company meetings, I've described innovation as a pop song called Anything Can Happen because when you're innovating, I, I get the feeling either with our economy or with UGC or with our future avatar system, when you did your um, Lua language work, anything can happen and, and the outcome is unpredictable but could be huge and magnificent. Do you um, have any thoughts on your view on innovation and, and how you motivate and inspire other people to innovate? Yeah, so I think for me, and Dropbox really is a very interesting kind of ground for this. For me, I don't know if I can succinctly define innovation. I usually don't think about this in terms, I kind of, I know it when I see, but you know, yeah. I don't know what the definition is. Or maybe you feel it. But yeah, like I feel it. But I feel for me, um, innovation, there's usually a few intersecting pieces. So there's an idea that is really interesting and kind of foundational, but maybe often underexplored before, or, you know, there's not quite a single way of how people can agree on doing this and you have a different view, right? And then um, really, really, really detailed, thorough, kind of excellent execution of that idea. And I guess together for me is when innovation happens, because I feel um, it's hard to judge an idea sort of before kind of um, having a really solid uh, manifestation of that. But also so many, so many times we kind of think, oh, hey, we can really improve something, we do the work, and then it turns out there's not a deep foundation for this work, and we missed a lot of corner cases and just kind of can't work in the future. So for me, I guess innovation happens when often there's like this path in technology space that's not sufficiently studied or sufficiently researched. You know, you look there, you see the path through this space, parts of this are based on prior work, parts of this just don't work and you have to invent, right? And then you make, uh, you try very, very hard to make a really sort of state-of-the-art world-class implementation of this. And when you're at the end, you can look back and say, wow, you know, I didn't know that we would get here, but um, it was really special. I think that description of innovation is, what's partially gotten Roblox to where it is. And it's that very magical thing we're trying to scale as we bring on more people and grow the company because scaling that is is really what creates the future for our um, platform. Uh, maybe a final fun question would be, do you have a favorite thing you've worked on at Roblox? And, uh, you know, does any, can you share a bit about what it was? Mm -hmm. 
Um, so, you know, um, all children are my favorite. I've worked on a few really, really, really big things. I feel like my two probably most... Um, Yeah, I feel like probably, uh, so before the last few years, definitely my kind of highlight was working on terrain, um, in part because this was something sort of totally new. And well, you know, it's kind of how I was describing innovation. There's this path through technology space, parts of the path are known, but parts aren't. So what is the combination of ideas that really makes things shine, right? And it was also really, really um, cross-functional. It's not a rendering feature. It's not a networking feature. It's not a physics feature. It's kind of like an everything feature. And it has really, really deep product implications. Yeah. So this, this is definitely one of the highlights. I really enjoy the work that I do these days on different parts of our language stack. And I feel like this is also something I'm really proud of because one is super exciting work. Two, many people don't know this, but so today there's a team at Roblox which has... I'm not even sure, like eight people or something like this. It's called the languages team. Um, it was not really something we could think about, you know, like four years ago, we just used an off-the-shelf implementation of an existing programming language. A lot of the tooling in our IDE was super bespoke and kind of like hacky in some ways. And having, having a team that just focuses on improving the language, improving the tooling around the language, improving the performance around the language, et cetera, just was not something that was on the horizon. And now it's there. So I think these two are the highlights from, from my career at Roblox. That's awesome. Well, Arseny, your vision has had a profound impact, not just on Roblox, but on hundreds of millions of people's lives as they experience Roblox and touch both directly and indirectly a lot of the work you've done. So not just thank you for being on the podcast, but thank you for everything you've done. It's been super interesting. The first of three, more detail to come and more fun Roblox facts, but I really appreciate it. Thanks for hiding me all of these years ago. <laughs> yeah, no, it's one of the best moves we ever did and we got lucky in connecting with you. So thank you, Arsene. Thanks, and yeah, thanks for having me today. Okay, take care. That's all for this episode of Tech Talks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about careers at Roblox, visit roblox.com forward slash careers. I'm Dave Bazuki. See you again next time.